Today's readings from the book of Daniel, chapter 2. We'll be reading today from the NIV versions. Daniel chapter 2, 24 to 35. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar that will, what will happen in days to come. Your dreams and visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are this. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mysteries show you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretations that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver its belly and tights of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Let's jump to verse 44. In the, mean, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will cross all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut up of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. This is the word of our Lord. I'll invite Andrew to come over. Thanks. Thanks, Eunice. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you again this morning to share the word. And... Um, 
Just as we were reading this story in Daniel, you know, if you read before that, it, it's not a fair fight. You know, um, King Nebuchadnezzar doesn't just want the wise men to interpret the dream. They actually have to tell him what it is. And that's what gets him so angry with his wise men and um, with his magicians and interpreters. And you can imagine the fear that would have gone through the... The wise men, the advisors, and those that worked for Nebuchadnezzar when they realized they couldn't do it. You might notice that um, today we're not going on with our uniquely reformed um, series. Um, today's message is entitled Living as Believers in an Unbelieving World. <clears throat> and um, the building blocks of this message have been uh, around in my notes for quite a while and um, a couple of weeks ago I really felt that God said that now is the time to, um, to bring it together and revisit some, some podcasts, some readings, some notes that I'd taken, some things that I'd understood back in, in, um, in Daniel um, to share some thoughts about that today. And not just because of where we are currently, uh, although that's important. But I think the last couple of years, we've seen a massive shift, haven't we, in, in how society's working. You know, five years ago, or not even five years ago, we were talking about same-sex marriage and the impact that was going to have on, on the church and on Christians. And we have so many other things that we've been dealing with in the last few years. And there's been a few times that I've wanted to um, speak a little around this. Um, and it's one of those messages that um, is probably never going to please everybody. You know, and like any, when you get into these discussions, whether it's the, the issues that we're facing today, whether it's uh, gender issues, whether it's um, how, we, how we bring things into schools or same-sex marriage, um, when we enter into these discussions, there's often people um, that say, oh, yes, but. You know, and this message is going to leave some of us with a, a yes, but. But as I was praying this week, I really felt that God said, yes, but is always going to be part of this life. The only time that yes but is going to go is when we stand before Him. And I think that's something for us to keep in mind. Keep your Bibles open because we are going to have a look at a few. There's not going to be a lot of stuff on the screen today. We are going to have a look at a few verses. So just as a bit of a heads up, slip your finger if you've got a paper Bible. If you haven't, um, Mark, um, Jeremiah 27, 28 and 29. We're going to have a look around there as well. So how does a Christian live? As a believer in an unbelieving world, how do we live a believer's life in a world of unbelievers? And more so in a world that's probably, not probably, that's even hostile to believers or increasingly hostile to believers. The Israelites, you know, in our story here, the Israelites were, were taken into exile, they were taken out of Judah where the government, the arts, culture, family, society, and indeed every sphere of life worked under a belief in the God of the Bible. Society and its values in Judah were built on God's law, on God's covenant way. Everything that happened in life, and we understand that when we read and we look at how the first five books of the Old Testament go together, everything that happened in life was centered around the God of the Bible. But now they are taken into a city, Babylon, a culture and a society where none of that was true. 
A society that was in fact hostile to the Bible and to God himself. How do they live in that culture? It's going to be 70 years and they're probably not aware of that yet. But how do they live in that culture? And how do I, as a believer, live in an unbelieving world? In a society where most of the institutions increasingly today, in our cultural institutions, in our educational institutions, our government, in, in health and medicine, in law, and I could go on with a list. In our society today, they're increasingly hostile to my faith to your faith, to our faith in God. Daniel is what they call an exilic book. Um, along with Esther and Ezekiel and parts of Jeremiah and others, they're books that are written around the exile. They talk about the time in exile. And they, they reflect on the times that God engaged with them before and going into exile. They're exilic books. And I think that they're really relevant for us today as well. <clears throat> Because some years back in our country and perhaps in Europe and the US and the UK, maybe we could talk about the West in general. A couple of years back, we could have generally said that we had a culture that was at large or largely supportive or at least sympathetic to our faith, to biblical norms and values, but not anymore. So then we're all a little bit like Daniel and we're all asking how can we live as Christians in a pluralistic, polytheistic world? Pluralistic as in there are no, there's no one set of ethics or one set of values. There, there's so many different ethics and values. Polytheistic in as much as there's lots of gods. There's lots of things that we worship in this culture as they were back then. How do we live as Christians in that kind of world? There's a lot in Daniel, and, and we don't have time to have a look at it all today. And even just in this reading, there is so much. Every time I went back to it, there was more that I wanted to say. But I wanted to notice something in our reading today that I think unearths just a little bit of a principle that I want to touch on today. Did you notice that Daniel had two names? Um, in our reading, in, in verse 26, he has two names. And if you read through Daniel, you'll see that a number of times. What does that mean? And why is it mentioned? Why does the writer, why is that always mentioned, those two names? <clears throat> Daniel, in Hebrew, uh, means God is my judge. That's a pretty cool name. Think about that when you name your next child. Belteshazzar, however, is a Babylonian name, and that means Bel is my God. Bel was one of the gods that was quite high up in society there. So he's got these two names. He has seemingly two identities or he's seen in two different ways throughout the culture that he's in. Seen in two lights and, and maybe there's two sets of allegiances if you look at those names. Well, what does it mean? And what is Daniel? What's it, Daniel, a man of God, doing right at the very top of this pagan government structure. An official. A wise man. You know, the, the wise men um, were the advisors and they were the people that ran the country. They were the ones that carried out the policy uh, of the king or of the, of the leader. And in verse 48, if you move ahead, you can see later on after this little story, he's actually placed as the head wise man, the, the number one wise man above all the other wise men. He's been put in charge of them. 
How did Daniel get here? Now the answer to these sorts of things might give us a couple of principles for living as believers in our world. To do that, it's going to be helpful to do a little bit of background. I always love doing this and I know that uh, some of you really enjoy that and, and I think it's a great way for us to understand what's going on. You know, we understand, we read Facebook, we read the newspapers, we, we get into the media or whatever, and we understand the culture we live in, and that helps us to interpret and how to make decisions. I think it's important to understand a little bit of the background here. And this will help you understand the background a little bit to Jeremiah and some other books as well. Most of us know that Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and he absolutely obliterated it. He raised it to the ground and he carried the people, <coughs> all the people, and all the stuff off to Babylon. There was nothing left. Commentators and, and writings of the time uh, talk about piles of rubble that were smoking rubble. He just raised it to the ground and took everybody, women, babies, children, everything. Everything that was in the temple, there was nothing left of the temple, everything he took to Babylon. This was around 587 BC. He completely destroyed it. What many don't know, and I didn't either until I did a little bit more research, is that he came 10 years earlier. And he didn't destroy the place, but he took 10,000 people captive back with him. Only 10,000. Who did he take? He took the intelligent class. He took the professionals, the military. He took the queen mother. Um, he took government uh, officials. He took scholars. He took um, doctors and officials in the... He took the young, strong, and, and, and he took some royalty with him. And he might have, Daniel might have been part of that. Daniel was young and strong. Why? Why did he do that? Well, Nebuchadnezzar was quite a switched on person. In fact, he was one of the most powerful people in the world. And some say that even today, he would still, go, he would still, uh, he would still make it into the top 20 most powerful men of all time over the world. But he was also very smart. He, wasn't, he was switched on. He knew the way to ultimately control and make a vassal nation subject to Babylon to make them subject to his empire, to make them fit in, was to completely Babylonize, that's not a word, this demographic. To completely take those people, that, that cultural class of leaders, and Babylonize them, I can't think of another word, to culturally and religiously change them. Babylon, we know, was a pluralistic and polytheistic culture. They served many, many gods, and it was okay to serve your god privately, but out in public you served many, many gods. You served all the gods, and you weren't exclusive. You didn't claim any exclusivity. Um, have a god, but, you know, um, don't be exclusive about it. Israel, however, was monotheistic. They were exclusive, and that was going to be a problem. That was going to make them not fit in if they were going to claim that their God was exclusive. So that had to be changed. So Nebuchadnezzar's goal was to destroy the biblical worldview of the whole professional class, to dislodge them, move them to live into a Babylonian culture, to take on the Babylonian culture so that they would become culturally, spiritually, religiously, and intellectually Babylonian. Assimilate them completely because assimilation would equal capitulation that's how you subdue Israel and when that's done then you go back and get the rest which he did <clears throat> however interestingly they stayed outside the city this first 10,000 they, they built an on or they, they were <clears throat> settled by a river outside the city 
And as their life went on, there were prophets that rose up among them. These were false prophets, we'll find out. And they began to say things. And one of the, lead, the leader of the false prophets was Hananiah. And we read about Hananiah in Jeremiah 27. And God warns Jeremiah and the people about these false prophets when he told them that he was exiling Judah. When he told Jeremiah his prophet, I'm exiling Judah, he warned them about these false prophets. If you've got your Bibles and if you want to have a look, have a look at Jeremiah 27, verse 5 to 7. Where God says through Jeremiah, With my great power and outstretched arm, I made the earth and its people and the animals that are on it, and I give it to anyone I please. Now I will hand all your countries over to my servant Nebuchadnezzar. Do you see that? My servant. This was a wicked man. My servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I will make even the wild animals subject to him. All nations will serve him and his sons and grandsons until the time for his land comes. Then many nations and great kings will subjugate him. And if you look a little further in 9 and 10, he says this, So do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your interpreters of dreams, your mediums, your sorcerers, who tell you you will not serve the king of Babylon. They prophesy lies to you. That will only serve to remove you far from your lands, and I will banish you, and you will perish. So there's a real strong warning against the false prophets in Jeremiah 27. Because these guys were prophesying counter to what God had said. They were outside the city, and this is what some of the this is some of what they were saying. They'd they'd risen up in this enclave outside the city of Babylon. And if you read through Jeremiah 28, there's all sorts of things that are peppered through that. Things like, do not go into the city. Do not move into the city. Now, think about it. Daniel and a few and his three friends had. And so they were prophesying, saying, do not go into the city. We have got to stay out of the city. It's a wicked city. Have nothing to do with it. Pray against the city. We're to pray against the city. Nebuchadnezzar is evil. And can you imagine they would have used names like he's a tyrant, there's tyranny happening in there, he's demonic, he's unsettled, he's, he's anti-Christian, he's uh, got a bad agenda, whatever they would have said. Nebuchadnezzar is evil. And they went on to say that God is going to break his yoke over us and it's only going to be two years. In two years this is all going to be over. And he's going to bring out all those spoils that he took. Uh, in verse 27 Verse 16, chapter 27, verse 16. Then I said to the priests and all these people, This is what the Lord said. Do not listen to the prophets who say, Very soon now the articles from the Lord's house will be brought back from Babylon. They had been saying that the articles were going to come back, the things that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen. And they said, Don't live in there. Stay out of the city. God is going to judge this city within two years, and then we'll come back out on top. Our culture will come back on, on, out on top. People will recognize that our way is the best way. We'll have the cultural power. We'll have the loudest voice. Have nothing to do with this city. The problem is, that's not quite what God said. In 27 verse 14, if you're still around there, do not listen to the words of the prophets who say to you, you will not serve the king of Babylon, for they are prophesying lies to you. 
Pretty harsh words, isn't it? Pretty interesting. Now, Jeremiah, he was a true prophet of God. And he heard all this and he went to speak to Hananiah. Um, if you read through that, and it's great to read through it as a story, he, he kind of almost, uh, and the other prophets, he kind of almost humours him and he says, well, I hope you're right. I, you know, I love Israel, I love Judah, I'm a, I don't like being in exile, um, I don't like that our stuff's taken, our temple's ruined, so I kind of hope you're right. I'd like it. But I'm not sure all this doom profiting is from God. And in Jeremiah 28, verse 8 and 9, he says this. From early times, the prophets who preceded you and me have prophesied war and disaster and plague against many countries and great kingdoms. Basically saying, that's what you guys are doing now. But the prophet who prophesies peace will be recognized as the one truly sent by the Lord, only if his predictions come true. And then verse 15. Then the prophet Jeremiah said to Hananiah the prophet, Listen, Hananiah. It's like, hey buddy, the Lord hasn't sent you, yet you've persuaded this nation to trust lies. Then Jeremiah heads back to Jerusalem. And from there he writes this letter. And he writes a letter to them and to all the exiles and the elders, the revealed will of God for the exiles. And this is what it said. It's really amazing and it will become the blueprint for Daniel's life. We're looking back in Jeremiah. This will become what Daniel sees as a blueprint for his life. And we're going to have that on the screen. This is Jeremiah 29, the first verse, and in verses 4 to 9. Read along with me. Let's Jeremiah 29 verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Then verses 4 to 9. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also... Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They're prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This must have been absolutely astounding and astonishing to them. Counterintuitive to everything they've heard from all the other prophets. Counter to everything that they would have thought God would have said. This is new. This is radical. You see, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar was evil. He was all those things. If you read some of the things in the time there, the things that they did in that city, the things that he sanctioned his men to do, the rules and the way that they treated people, the way that they, they killed people, that it, it bears, you know, we live in a wonderful world in comparison. 
He was all those things. And did you notice in one of those readings before, in Jeremiah 27, where God calls Nebuchadnezzar my servant? Even I have trouble with that. So what is God saying? What is he telling them? I think he's telling them a couple of things. I think the first thing he's saying is, get a bigger picture for what I'm doing. You've got to see broader than your own life, your own 80 years, your own, uh, maybe we've 80 years now, but perhaps I should, then you've got to see broader than your own. Get a bigger picture of what I'm doing. This is a city to which I carried you. In, in chapter 27, verse 6, he talks about, I took you here. In 29, in our reading, verse 4, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried. This is somewhere that I took you. It's part of my plan that you lost cultural power. It's part of my plan that you become a minority. It's part of my plan that your faith is not dominant, that you as believers now have to live in a, a wicked pagan city. It's part of my plan to renew you, to help you grow, to change you, to grow you, and to change them and to grow them. It's part of how I'll get my word out into the world. It's my plan. I designed this. I'm doing this. That would have been stunning for them. Why would a God that loves them so much, that calls them his people, why would he send them, of all places, you know, take us out of our city, of all places, the Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, as his servant? And he goes on, so move in there. Don't stay away. I put you here. The prophets are saying, stay out or, or you'll lose your identity and, and you'll assimilate, so separate. That's what the prophets are saying. But God is saying, they're not the only two choices. Assimilate or separate are not the only choices. It's not always just one or the other. On the one hand, he does say, don't assimilate. He says, grow in number, you know, marry and, 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 and plant gardens and, you know, build your houses and, and grow in number, grow in influence. As my people, don't decrease, don't lose your identity. Become Babylonian citizens, but know who you are. You're my covenant people. That's important. Hold on to the relationship you have with me. You're living in Babylon. You're Babylonian citizens. You've got to operate in that culture. But remember who you are. Then on the other side, he says, build houses. Settle down. Marry. Give in marriage. And that would have been outside of their own culture as well. Seek the prosperity of the city. So I don't want you to assimilate. Yet I do want you to move in there. I do want you to be involved in the city economically, culturally. Raise your families there. Be involved in the life of the city. But living distinctly as my people. So what does he mean? How does that work? He's saying, I don't want you to love me and hate society. Nor do I want you to love society and forget me. Love both. How do they do this? How do they do this? And this is what God says. He says, pray for, not against the city, pray for the city. Seek the peace of the city, because if it prospers, you will prosper too. Now that word peace, in the original language, is the word shalom. 
And we all know that word shalom, don't we? We've been hanging around Christian circles long enough to know what shalom is. But it's more than just a greeting. It's more than just shalom, as you see as a greeting. You know, when we're in Africa, in Uganda, um, the greeting, the common greeting will be praise the Lord. Now, very rarely have I seen someone come up and say praise the Lord to someone and the next minute someone bursts into song with their arms in the air. It's become a greeting, just as shalom had become and has become a greeting. But the word here is much more than that. It's much more than just the word of a greeting. It means the total well-being. Seeking the peace, seeking the shalom means seek the total well-being. All dimensions of society, spiritual, physical, economic, health, material, well-being. The word shalom in, in the original language is that complete, seek the peace, seek the shalom, that complete well-being of the culture and the place that you are. That's pretty stunning. I don't want you just to build your churches and observe the city from the safety of your churches. I want you to put your lives into it. I want you to sacrifice to, sacrifice to make this a great place, a safe place, a prosperous place. Spread the faith, but do everything you can to help those in need out of love for the city. Pray for it. False prophets were saying, don't pray for them. Pray against the city. Praying for our world leaders. It's really important, isn't it? We think about that. You know, we, um, we pray for our leaders. Eunice just did that. And every week we pray for our church leaders and for our state leaders and for our national leaders. And, and um, I would be remiss and, and dishonest if I didn't say sometimes when we're praying for our state leaders, I think, <clears throat> you know, I hope that God does something, but it's not blessing sometimes it's in my mind. He says, pray. It's really important that we pray for them as God's servants. God said, love the city of man for the sake of the city of God. Live in both. Have two names. This was Daniel's blueprint for living in a pagan nation. You know, often Christians believe that you either need to assimilate or you either assimilate or you need to separate. Or at least in practice, that's what happens. Daniel's different. Jeremiah 29 was his blueprint. He would have heard Jeremiah's words. He might have been listening or he may have heard it read to him the letter. He might have been really young and his parents might have. He would have heard the words. So what do we see in Daniel? What principles do we see? We see that he's a believer in God. Maybe he's even a prophet himself. He's completely monotheistic. He's utterly committed to the sovereign God of the Bible. But what did he do to get to this job, into this position? He's high up in the civil service, in the government. Remember, the wise men were the ones that ran things. In Daniel 1, if you read Daniel 1, you can see he went through a process to become one of the advisors, one of the wise men. And if you read some of the commentaries, it was a very rigorous process. It was very difficult. It was an intensive training. An intensive training, amongst other things, in Babylonian culture. They had to understand and know how to operate in Babylonian culture. Where it says, where Daniel says in our reading, no wise man, where Daniel says to them, because there's a no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can tell the king the mystery. That's what Daniel is. He is one of those. And as he says, don't kill us, you know, we'll get this sorted. He's one of them. And later on, he was made head of them. 
Is that uncomfortable for us? Does that make us feel a little bit uncomfortable? These were the people who had run the country. The advisors, the administrators, the council, if you like. And in order for Daniel to get into this position, he and his three friends, we read later these three friends were with him in this training course, they had to study enchanting. They had to study magic, incantations. Had to study Babylonian culture. Not only did they have to study it, they had to master it. They had to master operating in these things. And often Christians would say, and sometimes wisely so, that we have to keep away from learning about all that sort of stuff. Yet Daniel was a believer who mastered all that and hung on to his biblical worldview. Therefore, working at the highest level of a pagan structure and doing it as a believer in the God of the Bible. He would have had to enact and enforce legislation, rules, etc. Can you imagine? Can you just imagine how hard it must have been at times to make decisions? To carry out legislation? Can you imagine how hard it must have been for him sometimes to represent Nebuchadnezzar? To be part of a leadership that needed to keep society harmonious, safe and prosperous, etc. How did he do that? He understood Jeremiah 29, and he was not locked into either assimilating nor separating. I'm sure this wasn't easy. I'm sure it was difficult for him. And I know it's not easy in our day either. It's a challenge that we can face in so many areas of our life. For instance, if you're anything like me, um, and maybe most of us are, we like imperatives. We like rules. We like solid lines, don't we? You know, a Christian business person, we want to know what things can I do and what should I not do? What should I really, really avoid? Um, Who can I partner with? What kind of person can I partner in business with? And and what kind of person should I definitely not partner with? What kind of business interaction can I be involved in or decisions in my business with my employees can I do or or can't I be involved in? And even right now in our current situation, if you're in business, which laws must I follow and which should I definitely not follow? We're looking for that line. A politician, a Christian politician... Who should I align with or associate with? And who should I definitely avoid? Where should I fall on certain issues? Or where should I vote on certain issues? What what can I support and what should I never support? What's, What's the line there? What law should I protest against always? And which laws are always good? When can I align with the ruling party if I'm not in it? And when can I not? A young person... Young Christian person, perhaps, what kind of people should I definitely hang out with? Or can I hang out with? What's, what's the line? Who, who can I hang out with and who should I definitely not hang out with or get involved with? What uni groups or classes should I definitely avoid and, and which ones are okay? Should I have mostly Christian friends or should I have some non-Christian friends and what should the balance or how should that work? And with my career choice, is this profession okay? Definitely okay, and and which ones are not okay, and which ones should I choose? Maybe for even for a church. We might ask questions 
What subjects should we definitely not address in church or in church circles? What kind of things should we definitely do or stand for? Or, or what kind of things can we only do and say? Is it good to be relevant? Or is it not good to be too relevant? What decisions should we always make? And what decisions should we avoid? Should we avoid? What's the line? Why am I saying all this? And why is it important? Because it's the motivation behind the question, isn't it? On one hand, if you just enter all of these realms, business, politics, uh, study, uh, church, if you just enter all these realms and you never ask these questions or you never think, how does my faith, how does the cross, how does the gospel, how does my salvation influence how I work in these contexts? If you never wrestle or think about that, you've probably moved in the direction of assimilation because you're not evaluating that. You lose yourself. And it's really good to ask those questions and good to think. On the other hand, if you want or you need all the rules set out hard and fast, you need to find that black, thick, solid, always right line. And you're asking, what are the rules? Is there a book of rules? You need it defined all the time. <clears throat> you insist or you need the hard and fast rules that are always going to apply. Then you move in the direction of separation. Because it's easier. There's no hard work in that, is there? You don't have to think stuff out. You don't have to look at each individual situation. There's just, that's the rules. That's how we do that. But God calls us to be Daniels. And not just the Sunday school Daniel that got thrown into the lion's den. Not just the, you know, the meek and mild Daniel. That God calls us to be Daniels in all of that, doesn't it? Often as Christians and churches, we can default to what Hananiah said. You know, stay away. <clears throat> Pray against it. They're evil, those people. Don't integrate or get involved. I can remember when I was leading a school in Holland many, many years ago, there was a young guy um, who did the, the training school, a discipleship training school. And when he finished the discipleship training school, they tried to recruit, recruit him and say that you, he should stay and become a missionary. And he said, no, I... I've studied um, at university, and I studied in Holland, you can study the union movement, go figure. He studied the union movement, and he really felt like God said he wanted him to get involved in the unions, because he wanted to be an influence in the unions. And it was really weird for, for parents and Christians to say, you can't, the union movement, they're bad, you know, you have to stay away from them, they're wicked, they're evil. We can default to what Hananiah says, stay away, they're wicked, they're evil, don't get involved. But God has placed us here just as he did the Israelites in Babylon. And here might mean ge geographically here, like Victoria. It might mean Australia. It might, here might mean in the time, in this, this era of life of the world. But he's placed us here and he has the same message or call for us. He places us here because the city... Our society needs Christians, especially in the tough times, especially in the confusing times, especially in the times of social turmoil that we're in at the moment and have been for a while. Times of cultural shift and, and challenges to the culture. He needs people who will be salt in society, that will be willing to get into the areas that lead and direct our societies. But we also need the society that God has placed us in. We must not be proud and think God has sent us here as noble missionaries to only give 
We need society as well. It humbles us. It grows us. It teaches us to press in to God. We need sometimes to be out of power. Because our faith is one of the cross. It isn't of this world. And sometimes when we take it and we get into power in this world, it often gets distorted. And we too, as followers of Christ and as a church, we live in a world right now that's increasingly hostile to the faith that we hold dear. Maybe you think we have leaders a bit like Nebuchadnezzar, servants of God that are tyrants, are demonic, are evil, are anti-Christian, all those things that we talked about before. This is a pluralistic world. A polytheistic with many gods, isn't there? And what's the, what's the objection to us as Christians? Don't be exclusive. It's frowned upon. There are many challenges we have faced, and we will do. In the last years, there's an acceleration. I talked about it before. Same-sex marriage, gender, schools, assisted dying laws, laws around hiring or not hiring. <clears throat> and now, all of the COVID issues that we're discussing. As Dorothy said to Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. And we can't just capitulate and say, oh well, what can we do? But we also can't just separate and refer to our little rule book to deal with all the issues. The answers aren't always simple. And they're not always the same as last time or the same issue or the last issue. We live in this world with these leaders. We need to love and serve society. We need to love and serve the people. We must also seek the shalom, the total well-being. Remember that? I want you to think about that for a moment. If we were live, I would stop for a few minutes and I would have you call out to me. When you think of your well-being, not just spiritual, spiritual, physical, what kind of things make you feel like you have a sense of well-being? And I could... Preempt a few. Financial security, uh, freedom, um, being able to study, uh, being able to visit your family, you know, being free to worship our God, um, having your health. I could go on and on. What are the things, I want you to think about, what are the things that make up your sense, total in total, your sense of well-being, a home to live in, a car to drive, Children that you can enjoy, children that you can send to school, good schools. And what are the things that make you feel like well-being is part of your life? Well, now think about those things. We're supposed to seek and bring out those very same things to bring those to pass for our leaders and the society around us. Those very same things that we want for ourselves that make us feel like shalom, well-being... They're what we are to seek for our society. As broken as it is. Those same things you listed for yourself. Your health. Your ability to choose. We seek them for others. And that requires different things at different times. Often it requires sacrificial things. If I'm going to seek the well-being of someone else, it takes sacrifice on my part. And it might remind us that in the New Testament, in some way, doesn't it talk about us preferring others before ourselves? Loving a pagan world isn't easy. 
serving its goals is even harder. And yet that's what Daniel did. We need discernment from God because it isn't always cut and dried. It isn't always simple. Maybe we need to serve in ways and get to the top. And we might have to serve in ways that aren't always the way we like it or the way that we would do it or we even think is best or even the most biblical. You know, I'm not proposing to go to any solutions here. I'm not walking to this sort of COVID solution that we're going to get to in this sermon because there are no pat answers. I don't have them. And it isn't going to be easy this next season. We learn as we look over all of Daniel's story and as we understand the background a little bit more now that he did what was necessary to live the way God through Jeremiah commanded them to live. But he never lost his identity. Now I'm sure that many other Christians or believers might have raised their eyebrows at some of his work. They might have raised their eyebrows at some of the decisions that he made as one of Nebuchadnezzar's advisors. Maybe they would have questioned some of the actions or his involvement when it came to being a top official in a pagan government. But we also know, know in bold, that it definitely raised the eyebrows and got the attention of Nebuchadnezzar, didn't it? It definitely got the attention and raised the eyebrows of the hostile community when he stood separate and refused to follow orders not to worship or pray. Now when we read that, he was being asked not to love his God. And that'll be true for us as Christ followers on both sides of the issues. At the right time, this is important, at the right time, Daniel chose his hill to die on. And he made sure when and that it would bring the most glory to God and the kingdom. It's hard. And we often pray, don't we? God, let your kingdom come. You know, let your kingdom be revealed. We want, you, we want the world to see your kingdom. I mean, I, I pray that, and I trust that you do as well. We, well, the truth is, the kingdom is here, but it's not yet here in full, is it? That's the space we live in now, that the kingdom has come, but it is yet to come in greater glory, isn't it? And so even though this is a longer message, there's an extra small point, this one you get for free. Have a look, verse 35b, in our, I think it's in our Daniel reading. Let's have a look at verse 35b, the, the second part of 35. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Now go down to 44 and 45, those last few verses that Eunice read for us. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to other people. It will crush all of those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it, would, it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. So what's the rock in our story? It's the kingdom of God. It's not of human hands, the rock. Do you see that twice? It's not of human hands. This little rock, 
In some other versions, it's just called a stone. And we see two quick things, don't we? Verse 35 said, It'll become huge, like a mountain, and it will cover the whole earth. This whole dream is prophetic. And that part is definitely prophetic. It's not of human hands. The rest of the statue was the gold, the bronze, it was all all human hands. And the rock or the stone starts small. But do you see what it said? It said eventually it will cover, overtake the whole earth. That's a promise. We can have confidence that the kingdom of God, even as we serve other kingdoms of man, we can have confidence that the kingdom is here right now. Now, it might not look big, it might not look influential, but oh, it's going to get huge. It's going to fill the whole earth. His kingdom will come. God will not be defeated. And the second thing, it'll prevail, isn't it? That is the second thing. It will never be destroyed. It won't be destroyed by pagans, by Nebuchadnezzar, by anyone you can think of, or by even us not always making the right decision. The kingdom will prevail. It won't be left to others. It's not going to be stolen from us. It belongs to us. We won't lose it. And eventually it will crush the enemy and put an end to his wicked rule. The way that the enemy rules through all hostile thrones, through Nebuchadnezzar, through any historical hostile leader. Because the kingdom will endure. That's how we have the confidence to pray, to love, to integrate, to make decisions, to serve and seek the shalom, the well-being of our society, the place that we live in, the people that we live with. It isn't perfect here yet, but we know the kingdom is here. And we also know that it's coming in much greater glory. It will prevail. Our hope is in God. It's not in these worlds. It's not in this society. It's not in the powers of this world. Even though we may serve them, even though we may need to live under them, even though we may need to follow, our hope is in God. That gives us perspective. Where are you looking for perspective? What's keeping your mind active? What's making you um, enter all these discussions? What are you reading more than the Word? What are you doing researching more than the Word? Who are you looking at as leaders more than the Lord? So we can be Daniels, even when it's not really defined in our world. Even when we don't get it right every time. But, and this is really important, we have a better example, an even greater example than Daniel. Jesus was the ultimate Daniel. He neither assimilated, nor did he separate. He came into a hostile world. He loved it. He prayed for its inhabitants. You and me. He served its citizens. You and me. He became one of its people. He took on flesh. He he came out of heaven and came to a Babylon of sorts and became one of its people. He didn't stay outside. He didn't separate. He came in. He mixed with all the people and he showed them, us, who God really is. And he knew and spoke about his identity as a son of God. 
Oh, look, many things that he did and said, many decisions would have raised and did raise the eyebrows <clears throat> of the church and the religious set. Many of the ways that he operated raised the eyebrows of people like you and me, the religious set of the day. He didn't always follow the rules. He didn't always follow the established church or temple protocol or the way they understood how uh, faith should play out, did he? But likewise, many things he did and said also raised the eyes of the hostile Romans too, didn't they? Often causing disdain and anger. But also sometimes it also caused some Romans, some, some of the hostile world to say, wow, who is this man? Friends, Jesus didn't just seek the shalom of the wilderness people. He actually brought the shalom to the people. On the cross, he attained shalom for us, for me and you. And he became our peace. Where are you looking for it? He became the ultimate well-being for them and for us. He is our peace. He is our shalom. He is what we have to pass on to the world around us. And he came so that his kingdom would grow in our hearts. That little stone, that, that little rock would crush the wickedness in us and would begin to grow. And it's a process. It's growing, isn't it? Because all the wickedness is not gone in my heart and I don't know about you. But it's growing and that's the promise, isn't it? It would come. His kingdom would come in the places that we live in. In the situations that we're in, the good ones and the tougher ones. His kingdom is relentless and will come. Praise God for his son Jesus, who did not stay outside of this heart, this Babylon, this hostile place, me and you. But he came in. He came in. He loved me. He loved you. He prays and intercedes for me, not against me. And he brings me and you supernatural and eternal shalom, serving me with everlasting life. That's our Daniel. Dare to be a Daniel. Let's pray. God, thank you for um, loving us. Thank you for Jesus, for, for coming in to our hearts. Thank you for not staying separate, for, for coming in and bringing your kingdom in our hearts. And then through that, bringing your kingdom into the world that we live in. Thank you for uh, the way that you worked with your people that was often surprising to see that you would call someone like Nebuchadnezzar your servant. And that in chapter 27 alone, more than six times you tell the people to serve him. Lord, teach me what it means to serve those that you've placed above me. Even when I don't understand it. But teach me how to remember who I am. That I am a child of God. That you are my only God. And that I will love you and worship you. In the midst of the turmoil, in the midst of the times that are hard. 
But Lord, on the other hand, guide me when I need to make decisions. Guide me when I need to learn what it means for me to seek that well-being, that shalom for the people that don't love you, that aren't the same of me, that, 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 that wouldn't respond positively to you and, and wouldn't even thank me. And yet, Lord, teach me to seek the shalom, even if it costs me. Teach us to do that. Jesus, you went before and paid an enormous price for my peace, my shalom. Let me be found, let us be found, those that would do the same for those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.